Well, good morning, everyone. So I have to tell you, I am like a sports freak. If you didn't know that, I mean, I love every kind of sport. I think the saddest day of the year is the end of football season. And you can't, right? It's like, that's like the worst day of the year. Football season is over. Uh, but usually then that, you know, you're in the middle of basketball season, hockey season, March Madness happens, the summer of the Olympics. Right now it's kind of this downtime because like all that's going on is baseball. And I like baseball, but, but it's like, I like it when there are lots going on because I love sports. I love to talk about them. It was so, so crazy about sports. There was a time in my uh, late twenties, uh, my wife and I were still living in Seattle and I was, uh, I was working at a university up there and, it was kind of a, a terminal kind of position. It wasn't going to go anywhere. And at that point, it's like, well, what do you want to do? And, and Laura looks at me one day and says, what would you do if you could do anything in the world? I said, I would be a sportscaster. So, so we moved back to Denver. I, I was in graduate school in broadcast journalism at CU saying, I want to be a sportscaster. That'd be the greatest job in the world because all you do all day is watch and talk about sports. I still just watch and talk about sports most every day, but I don't get paid for it. I, I'm one of the bazillion experts in sports that exist in the world because we can talk about it. I mean, go on social media, right? If you follow a sporting event and following the event, all the experts come out because we all know better than what the coaches and the players could do. That's the, that's the nature of sports, right? Uh, we like to second guess. We, I remember two Super Bowls ago, remember it was uh, the Patriots against the Seahawks, my two least favorite teams. I kind of viewed that Super Bowl the way I view the current election. I, I, don't, I don't want anybody to win, so, so what's the base, best case scenario? So I didn't know what to do. I was rooting for a really controversial ending where the winner would not feel satisfied and the loser would have an excuse. That was kind of what I wanted to see take place, and it almost happened. I mean, it was a controversial ending as far as a coaching decision. If you remember, CX uh, had the ball like on the one-yard line, and if they just gave it, handed it off to Marshawn Lynch, they'd probably win the Super Bowl. But instead, Pete Carroll chose to pass it, and the Patriots intercepted it, and the experts came out in droves. Why did he make that decision? Why did he do that? Why did he choose to do that? That was a stupid decision to make, and every year they lost it. And, and then the other team is saying, but we just made a great play, and, and because we're all ex- experts when we don't really play the game. Uh, and it's kind of like the old adage where the coach was asked about what was the challenge with the team and how do you get new players. He says, well, the issue is that there is a guy who, who, who never misses a shot. He makes every free throw. His passes are amazing. He makes every decision pers- uh, absolutely perfectly. The, the problem is he's too busy eating his hot dog to put it down and come out of the stands and play the game. Because we're all experts at something we really don't know. Now, now, we've been in the middle of this book of Mark, and we've started at the beginning, and we're working our way through. We're in the middle of chapter 6. And if we recall, the, the, the whole story started with Jesus showing up on the scene, right? And, and he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and then he went off to the wilderness for a few days. Uh, and, and then he came back, and he came into town announcing to people, the kingdom is just about here. The, the kingdom is on its way. It's getting closer. Repent and believe the good news. And we've used that word repentance over and over and over again to remind ourselves of what repentance means. And repentance is literally a turning from one thing and a turning to something else. And what Jesus has been saying in all of his instruction and all of his his demonstration of what the kingdom is, he's saying you need to turn from your old way of thinking, your old affiliations, your old expectations, your old commitments, your old allegiances, and turn toward new ones that are expressed in the kingdom of God. Which, the way I'm explaining it, is upside down from what you ever thought it would be. That's, that's repentance. He says, repent and believe the good news. And then it said he, he started calling people to follow him. And we have this story of, of him seeing these fishermen first. And he said, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And when we went through that passage, we said, 
this is all about action. Come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. He said that to, to fishermen who did that for their living. And, and we said that statement too often has been turned into kind of a little cliche, trite saying about evangelism. I'll make you fishers of men if you follow me. And, and fishers of men was a profound statement because a fisherman knows that when you catch a fish, it has a profound, fatal influence on the fish. That, that fish's life will never be the same. It has to be completely transformed. And so the call to follow was to learn from Jesus along the way and be involved in something that is absolutely transformational in people's lives. It's about action and doing because that's what God is about. He's about action and doing and, and living. The, the problem is, is, since that call, come follow me, come and be involved in action, we haven't seen a lot of action from the disciples. We've seen a lot of listening. We've seen a lot of personal instruction. We've, we've seen a lot of Jesus preaching, and they've, they've watched him. They've observed him doing things. They've, they've ridden around in a boat a lot. They got caught in a storm. They went to the other side of the lake, then back to the other side, and, and they haven't really done anything. And, and we're starting to say, well, where's this, this action, this activity that Jesus wanted them to engage in? And, and we're finally going to get to that today. The, the whole mission of Jesus is starting to change and starting to transition into something different. So we find ourselves in Mark chapter 6, uh, verses 6 through 30. Let, let me read it to you, and then, and then we're going to figure out what we do with it. It says, Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and, and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for, for Jesus' name had become well-known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah, and so others claim he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he, and he had him bound and put in prison. He, he did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he, and he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed because... But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. 
The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done. I don't know about you, but this is an odd story. This is one that messes with our brains. And we read this and go, why is this all part of the same story? And one of the things we have to remind ourselves is that Mark, remember Mark was writing and preaching and teaching, presenting this information to persecuted Christians in Rome in the 60s. They were living under Nero's oppression and persecution. So about 30 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection, Mark was writing, and these people were persecuted. And in the middle of that, so, so he has this story about the disciples being sent out. But in the middle of it, he gives this kind of flashback scene. Right? This wasn't taking place right then. This was a flashback. You guys remember what happened to John the Baptist. And he tells that story, and then there's just kind of this matter-of-fact ending, and the disciples came back and told him all that had happened. And we start asking ourselves a question again of, was why does Mark include these the way he does? Why does he insert this flashback scene? And we have what we've seen a few times in Mark, this, this sandwiching technique where he starts with one story. It was a literary device. starts with one story about Jesus, then interjects this other one, and then ends with the one he started with. And so we go, these are meant to be seen together somehow, some way. And the middle of really this exciting time of Jesus sending out his disciples and giving them authority to, to be his hands and feet and his words and his ears and to be in a, have authority that he gives and, and they go out and it says they're accomplishing amazing things. And in the middle of it he says, and then there was Herod. And we know from this passage and from history, some different writers from around that time, that, that Herod was just a despicable man. Herod Antipas was one of the Herods. And Mark, it's interesting, he refers to him here as King Herod, and I think he was actually giving him a little dig because Herod Antipas wanted to be given the label of king, and, and the real king Caesar said, no, you're, you're a tetrarch, you're a, you're a governor of a region. And Herod was one of many Herods. We've talked about this a little bit before. There was Herod the Great, who, who was in charge of this larger region at the time Jesus was born. When he died, that, that territory that he had oversight of was divided among his sons, uh, four different sons, and, and they each had a portion. And Herod Antipas was the Herod, or the tetrarch, or the governor, over this area that included Galilee. And what's fascinating in this story is, is that it said he liked to listen to John. He, had, he was fascinated by what he had to say. He was also puzzled by it. And John the Baptist had been out preaching that you are wrong. You are basically sinful. You are going against the things of God. Why? Because you're married to your, your brother's wife. And it gets really quite convoluted and quite incestuous. So he was married to his brother's wife. The story goes that he had met her at a party of his brother and kind of was infatuated with her, and, and she was really a social climber, and she thought it would be better to be married to him than her current husband who had, he was a Herod too. And so he married the, the wife of his brother while his brother was still alive. Actually, that lady Herodias was also his half-niece. So his, his half-niece became his wife, and her daughter, now his stepdaughter, was also a niece, half-niece related by blood. It's deceptive. This is like a made-for-TV movie. This has everything. It has sex and, and, and intrigue and adultery and murder. It's, it's crazy. 
And this was the situation going on. And, and it said he, he was throwing himself a birthday party. Right? He, he was throwing himself a birthday party, which, which also the Jewish people were opposed to as kind of building yourself up. They didn't like those birthday parties at that time. But he was throwing himself a birthday party. And what you have to imagine is like the most hideous bachelor party you can imagine. And all who's who in the town, all the men of means and of power and status were at this party selling me the birthday of this man who, who had basically sold out his own wife to marry in this lustful relationship his niece slash sister-in-law. And in the middle of it comes his other niece, now stepdaughter, to dance. And it's implied through history and through this passage that this was a sexually erotic thing. And we can imagine that because this is the kind of guy this was. And it says all the men were pleased with her. And he says, probably in a drunken stupor, that was great. I'll give you anything you want. Up to half my kingdom, which was a common oath. He, he couldn't give away half the kingdom. The kingdom wasn't his. He was just a puppet leader, a puppet ruler of the Caesar of Rome, Caesar of the Roman Empire. But he's basically saying, I'm going to be generous. Whatever you want, I'll give to you because you were amazing. It was awesome and everybody liked it. And she went back to her mother. Herodias says, what should I ask for? This is a great opportunity. And Herodias basically said, I want the head of John the Baptist. I hate that man. He's been causing trouble for me. He's been telling Herod, your stepfather, that he shouldn't have married me. He's been preaching that. And, he, and, and Herod listens too much to this man. And so he liked to listen to him, right? He was intrigued by him, yet puzzled by him, but he, but he liked it. And, and there's this sense that this was an ongoing thing. And see, John was in prison because, it says, Herodias was trying to protect John from, or Herod was trying to protect John from Herodias. So, so he put him in prison, which is what happened right when Jesus came on the scene, if we go to the very beginning of the book of Mark. Jesus was baptized, went to the desert. It, it says, after John was put in prison, Jesus showed up saying, repent. Right? So this has all been taking place. And Herodias finally has her chance to get rid of this person who's been a thorn in her side, who's made it harder for her to keep climbing and getting more and more, and we want the head of John the Baptist. And in order to save face, Herod gives her that desire. And so she asked for the head and she immediately sent the executioner who brought the head of John the Baptist on a platter and presented it to the girl who took it to her mom. And then John's disciples came and took his body and put it in a tomb. This is the scenario. And we go, what do we do with this? This story in the middle of this other one about Jesus sending out I think we have to look at the whole passage to try to grasp this. And, and the title of the message today is Your Mission Should You Choose to Accept It. And my titles and references tend to give away my age. I'm not talking about the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movies. I'm talking about the TV show. Mission Impossible. Sunday nights at 8 o'clock. Dun, 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 dun. Right? It's awesome intro. One of the best riffs ever. I mean, it just gets you right away. You're, you're hooked as soon as you hear it. And the storyline is always basically the same. And Mr. Phelps, the guy who works for the organization, shows up somewhere. He's on a train. He's on a plane. He's in a tunnel, and there's a little tape recorder. Good morning, Mr. Phelps. And it goes on to state 
the mission that's in front of him? What's the purpose of the mission? What's the nature of the mission? What's the content? What's the, what are the desired results? What are the things about this mission that you're going to do? And here's all it's laid out and pictures of who's involved. And it comes very convoluted, right? And always ends in a way you never thought it would. Love the show. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, this tape will self-destruct in five seconds. And the smoke, right? And then the theme song. One of the things we have to wrestle with is we look at this passage and go, this was Jesus sending them on a mission. His disciples for the first time stepping out in activity as they were called to do. But one of the things I want us to remember as we go through this are a few things. One's the word repentance, which we already talked about. Literally turning from one way, one old way towards something new that Jesus has laid out, which is the kingdom of God in all of its glory. The second is, is the idea of, of mission, and the idea of ministry. See, too often we think of mission as something you go do. Uh, there, there are some groups heading out, we we'll celebrating later uh, about going on some mission trips to Mexico, to Guatemala. Next week is a, is a commissioning service for, for Jimmy, who, who, who was here as executive pastor and now is working for a, a mission organization. And we tend to see mission as, as something out there. It's something that you go do, and it's a very specific event-driven thing. And then we tend to think about the word ministry. We tend to think about ministry are when we do church-related things or parachurch-related things. And when people talk about, are you going into the ministry? Are you in the ministry? And they mean, are you a pastor? Are you a missionary? Are you... Ministry in Scripture, mission in Scripture is our life. We are all called and are ministers. We are all on mission. That, that's the nature of who we are. That's our life. And we play it out in different contexts, in different ways, with different giftedness and different skills and different talents, but with the same God energizing it all. We're all on mission. We're all in ministry. And in this context, we have this interesting where he sent the disciples out, and there's a phrase at the end, then the apostles came to him to report all that had happened. This is the first time that word apostle is used. And this is not a title here. This is... Apostle. In Greek, it means the sent ones. And so the apostles, the one that were sent, came back to report all that had happened. And so as we, we go through what do we learn and what do we take from this passage, keep in mind we're talking about the mission. We're really talking about life. What's our life in Christ like? And so first we have to understand from this passage, what's the, what's the purpose of the mission? What's the purpose of our life? Should we choose to accept it? And that purpose in this passage is to be an extension of Christ in the world. We're an extension of Christ in the world. And there's this great phrase in here. It says, he sent them out two by two, which is good for safety and good as a witness to what happens. And he gave them authority over the evil spirits. If we've seen what's happened in Mark, when Jesus came on the scene and the, and the spirits, the spirit world knew who he was. The evil spirits, the demons knew who he was and his authority over them was an indicator that he is God. Only God has authority over those things. And this idea, he, he gave them authority. This is a legal phrase. He's basically saying, when you go out, it's as if I'm going out and you are my legal representatives. My wife, whose mom passed away just a couple months ago, uh, um, had Alzheimer's, and Laura became her 
uh, her guardian, basically. She had all of the powers of attorney, durable power of attorney, health care power of attorney. She could sign things on behalf of her mom, and when she signed it or made a decision, it was as if her mom, Jane, did it. She, she was the legal representative for Jane. She had that authority. There was a, a legal idea behind that. And, and that's what Jesus is saying to these disciples. You are going out. You are an extension of me. I'm giving you that authority. I'm giving you that standing. Whatever you do, it's as if I did it, is basically what he's saying. We are the voice and action of Christ. He, he sends them out to make ministry and life happen. That was what he was doing. That was the purpose of the mission, to be an extension of Jesus in the world. They were out and call for repentance, and that's what they said they did. And we've already looked at that word. The phrase I like to use related to this is, they were called and we were called to wear the name of Jesus well. When people see us, do they see Jesus? And that's an idea in Scripture that goes way, way back. The idea of God having a chosen people. And even if we look at the Ten Commandments, there's one of the Ten Commandments is uh, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't misuse the name of the Lord. And when we get into the depth of what that terminology was in Hebrew, it's really a fairly ambiguous term. And we've done a disservice to the idea by making it strictly about swearing or using the actual word God in the wrong context because, well, that's easy to measure. Well, I didn't take the Lord's name in vain. I can check the box. I didn't swear and attach the word God to it. That's not what that's about. It's kind of like when, when people are married, and oftentimes, uh, not as much all the time, but a, a, a wife will take the husband's name, right? Or, or when I, I wear my name, my name is Dale Flanders, my last name is Flanders, and my, my parents and their parents and my dad's father and his father, we all had that name, and there's this idea of, of a reputation in a family and a family name that you wear. Are we wearing the family name well? And that's really, I think, the underlying context of don't take the name. There, there's an idea in that language of putting on the name. If you call yourself God's people, in the Old Testament, Yahweh's people, what are you saying about Yahweh in the way you live your life? When we are people who say we are Christians, we are followers of Jesus, are we wearing that name well? Jesus sent out the disciples and said, you are an extension of me, wear my name well. What you do and how you live and what you say and how you interact is a reflection on me. And I've given you that authority to be an extension of me in everything you do. That's the purpose of your mission the purpose of your life in me. Be an extension of Christ in the world. Well, then we say, well, what's the nature of the mission? Well, what's interesting is, is it, it, he says, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no, no bread, no bag, no money. Wear your sandal, but don't take an extra coat. And, and whenever you stay in a house, stay there until you leave that town, which is a really odd idea. It's like, we're going to be Celebrating people heading off and praying for people heading off on mission trips at the end of the service. Mission trips. Event-driven things. And I would suspect that at the first meeting of those teams who were interested in going and were going, we've set the dates and here we go, and it's like, well, how much money should we bring? I don't bring any. Where are we going to eat? I don't know. Where are we going to stay? Eh. Well, how long are we going to be there? Hmm, your guess is as good as mine. 
Huh. Yeah, I don't think I'm going on this trip. Who planned this? They should be out of a job. Right? This, this is not a how-to go on a mission trip. This is a statement of what is the character of the disciples. What is the way we approach living as an extension of Jesus? How do we look at our life as we step into all the messiness of the world around us? How do we wear that name well? And he's basically saying your personal, cons, your personal comfort is inconsequential. When you're wearing the name of Jesus well, it's not about us. It's about how do we live in that world. And so he's basically saying when you show up in a town with no food and no extra clothes and nothing to your name, that's showing the necessity and the urgency of the moment and of the call and what it means to live with urgency and anticipation of Jesus coming again. That's how we approach it. There's an urgency to this, so don't take too much. But it's also when you show up, somebody's going to show you generosity and say, hey, come stay with us. And basically it's saying, if somebody offers that generation, stay there. Don't, don't spend your time looking around for, well, this house really is awful. I want to stay at that one. There, there are better things over here. There, why did I get stuck here? Peter's over, look where he is. There's a pool. <laughs> and, but that's how we are. I have so many examples of that. All through high school, college, and even a first job at a university, I was in charge of and participated in all kinds of groups that went out to perform at schools and colleges and camps and all this. And, and when you went to these towns and you traveled for months at a time, you always went to a town and you got put up in people's homes, right? You we're staying at homes. And, and some people had amazing homes. It's like, oh, yeah, the people who took us, they're not even there. They just gave us a key, and we have a pool and a pool table and great video games. We stayed up all night. They stocked the fridge with great food. And I'm going, I just stayed in a place where the windows don't open. There was cat stuff in the bathtub. And then you talk about what lunch they packed for you. My sandwich had hairs in it. I want to stay where you're staying. Because that's how we are. It says, don't do that. The character is you welcome the generosity of people and you stay there and don't look around for something else because it's not about your comfort. It's not about building up what you have. It's about how do you serve? How do you wear that name of Jesus well? And I have an example. And there's a group that's going to be going to Guatemala. I was on a mission trip from our church to Guatemala several years ago. My son was on the trip, a whole range of ages from the church. It was amazing. And one of the things I learned very quickly on that trip is when you, when you show up in towns, and we had gone at one of our times, we were four nights at this little town in the mountains that hardly anybody ever went to visit. And basically when you show up for these kind of things and they find out you're the pastor, all kinds of things happen. Like, first of all, well, you're here and you're the pastor. We're going to have a four-day community event and you're going to preach at all of them. Huh. Really hadn't planned on that, but yep, I'm right there with you. And you start planning for those things with an with a interpreter. And, and then we were all divided up to go stay at people's homes in, in this very challenging little town. And four of us went to a home of, by that town standards, was a pretty well-to-do family. They owned a little restaurant and we walked into their home and it was upper class in that community, but it, it, it was still tough. The, the bathroom was disgusting. It was dirty. It was smelly. This town had this weird smell of smoke that was everywhere all the time. We counted there were something like 15 people sleeping when we got there at different places in the house. And, and they took us to a room and had their best blankets and stuff on the floor, and we laid there. And little did I know I was in the process of becoming quite ill. 
American visiting Central America ill, if you get my drift. Didn't know it yet. But in the middle of the night, trying to sleep, I woke up to a start and I couldn't breathe. I go, man, what is going on? I feel horrible. And I heard a noise and I looked out through the little crack in the door and there was a little pickup truck in the house, running. Because this house was also where they stored all their stuff, or their, their supplies for the restaurant. It was safer. And they're loading up this truck and there's exhaust just pouring in. I'm going, oh man, I'm going to die. And, and the truck left. And the, and the next day, I knew I had to find a new place to stay. I ended up staying at the local school on a cot, which I could rest and recover to get ready to preach these different nights. And it was also had much better access to the restroom. When I, when I told the, the mother of this family I couldn't stay there anymore, the, the look on her face was devastating. I had a valid excuse. I'm getting really sick, and you don't want me here. <laughs> and and I, I have to go somewhere else. But, but, but deep down, this, this just hurt her. Because she had poured out everything. The generosity was amazing. But the way it comes across was it wasn't good enough. And I slept somewhere else the next three nights. And, and I could just tell it impacted her the rest of the week, every time she'd see me. Because before then, it was Il Pastor staying at our house. And, and now it's, she was focused on the other three that were there. And, and somehow that had an impact on my witness in that community, even with a good excuse. Because the reality, when the disciples went, they weren't supposed to look after their own comfort and their, their own approach. This was about wearing the name of Jesus well. And, and how our character is in those contexts says everything about Jesus. And we have to be careful. About a year ago, there was a, a fascinating and a rather disturbing story with a, a pretty major televangelist pastor in our country who had put it on an appeal to raise enough cash to buy a $65 million private jet because people needed to hear the word. I'm sorry. That is not wearing the name of Jesus well. That's looking out for your own comfort and saying that's the way Jesus people hear things is when that's how we present ourselves. That's not the way it works. It's not about your own comfort. It's about Jesus. And it's about the people we serve. So we've seen the purpose of the mission, the nature of the mission, the content of the mission is something that tangibly changes lives. Not just something new to believe in. And this is where we start to see what we learn from the story about Herod and John the Baptist. Right, it said that Herod liked to listen to John. He was fascinated by what he said. He, he was intrigued. He, he may have believed some of it, but, but he wasn't transformed. And, and the disciples were to teach repentance. John preached repentance. They were all preaching repentance, which we've said is a transformation of life, of all of life, of the whole of life, of your very being changed forever for the things of God. But, but Herod wasn't willing to go there. Instead, Herod married to his in-law slash niece, being aroused by the dancing of his niece slash stepdaughter, being willing to put to death a prophet of God in order to save face on a whim, 
seemingly a powerful, strong man, but he, he couldn't do the right thing. He couldn't look at Herodias and say, this is a good man. He, he labeled him holy and righteous man, but not holy and righteous enough to save his life and to stand up to Herodias. His life wasn't changed, and that's what the disciples, and that's what we are called to proclaim. The, 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 the content of the mission is about something that radically changes lives, just like fishers of men is something that radically transforms. That's what it's all about. That's the, the content. Not just tickling people's ears, not just saying what people weigh. Yeah, you can take it or leave it. No, it's yes or no. Do you believe this? It's something transformative. And, and, and finally, we have the result of the mission, which in this passage, we have to do a little bit of work because it's kind of subtle. But what's the result of the mission? Because we look at this at first blush, and the disciples went out, and they did what they called. They called people to repentance. They cast out demons. They healed the sick. They told about who Jesus was to the degree they knew it at that time. And then we have the story of John the Baptist, and we say, that's a failure. What kind of mission is that? What kind of result is that? This is John the Baptist. This is the one that Jesus said, he's the greatest of the prophets. He's higher than Elijah. He's the one proclaiming the announcement that Jesus is coming. That is the most amazing guy. And he was beheaded at the whim of this weak man and his lustful wife and revengeful wife. He was killed for that. What kind of result is that? If we're some of these persecuted Christians in Rome that Mark was addressing, and we know what we've lived through, in some ways we look back and we just see this. There was one guy announcing Jesus coming. Now there are 12 that have gone out. And later Mark will see there were another 70 that went out. And we're all here because of what they did. I mean, we would look and say, somewhere in the middle of this, there is triumph in the midst of suffering. And what looked like failure is absolutely blazing success. We can learn that from the story. And I think it's in there because of that. Yeah, he flashes back to what happened to John the Baptist, what hideous things Herod did, how it seemed like failure. But it's like the story moves on. That was tragic. But now the apostles have come back in and they're reporting all that was done and said. And there's just so much going on in this story. We see what happened to John in some ways because we know the whole story. We go, something similar is going to happen to Jesus, but we know even the bigger picture. And we can revel in that and celebrate that and rejoice in that. This is not a statement This is not a passage about how do you do a mission trip. This is not a story about what does it look like to be a missionary. This is a a passage that paints the picture of what does life in Christ look like? What, What are we about? We're the extension of Jesus. We wear his name well. That's our goal. And we don't, we ask forgiveness of the people we've offended and of God. And and we wear that well and we strive to do that because we've been given that authority by Jesus to go out and be an extension of him. When people see you, they see me. Wow. That's amazing. What an opportunity. What a responsibility. And the nature of that is we say, it's not about my personal comfort. It's not about me looking for what's the next greatest thing I can do. It's no, how do I wear that name well? That's the character I take into everything I do. And the content is to talk and live about the transformative nature of Jesus. 
and then to understand that the result is God's work in the world. The, the result is even though we can't identify positive sometimes, we know that Jesus is at work and that even things that look like failure can be turned into something amazing because the kingdom is huge and God's reign is amazing and the kingdom of God is upside down from anything we ever thought it would be and that's an amazing thing. That's, that's the call we have for all of life and, and it's our mission. It's our life. Should we choose to accept it? Let's pray. Over the map.